0: I'm Kim. I'm married to an addict alcoholic.
1: Hi, Kim. Uh, my name is Chris, and I am an addict alcoholic. Hi, Chris. Good to see you. I like our colors. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm excited today. Uh, we we get a lot of questions about kind of how to help the addict in your life, and I'm not a professional. We say that all the time. Um, we We've obviously been through some things, but um, that doesn't mean that we have um, the perfect answer for for helping in any one situation because they're all definitely different. So I'm excited for our guest today, Missy. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Um, pull that guy just a little bit. There we go. There. Perfect. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so um, why don't why don't we start off by uh, talking? about kind of addiction in, in your life growing up and and how you may have been affected by those things.
2: So I was really naive to it until I was probably around 20 when I dated an addict for the first time. Um, so that was, that was very interesting, um, unfortunately, in a negative way, but also a learning way, which led to later like a few years later my brother ended up started like using at the age of 13 and um unfortunately he's still using but he he also it's kind of like you know he doesn't see an issue yet hopefully eventually he will but he has been to treatment like three times um before the age of 18. Oh wow. Um it was like it was really hard. um, it's still hard sometimes because I kind of avoid him um because of my profession, and it's also hard to watch. Um, sure. I think boundaries was the hardest one for me with him because he's my little brother, you know, yeah, so um but I mean, I'm like grateful for those experiences too, because it kind of led me into the field that I ended up wanting to do. So,
1: and what 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 field are, are you going um,
2: into? So I am an LADC uh, licensed alcohol and drug counselor, and then my long term goal is to be a clinical mental health counselor. So I'll have a dual license. Oh wow! Because um, it's very difficult to, you know, usually an individual goes into treatment, and you have to open up and tell your case manager, like you know every, you know everything. Um, and then paired with, you know, more than likely trauma, um, and I'm not licensed to deal with that. So then they have to go and open up to another individual. So that's hard. I just like would love to be like all encompassing for those yeah. people. Yeah. So, um,
1: that's something that we talk about here all all the time. When I was in treatment, like the, what seemed to be the biggest underlying issue was trauma. Um, and how people were able to cope with things mm-hmm. and for and especially for for men like they m- majority of the older men that I was in there with um they'd never like recognize they, they thought that PTSD was something that was exclusive to like serving in the military or um, being victims of uh you know a car accident like something that they Right. thought it was there's some type of physical thing associated with it. they right. didn't realize that um trauma can can come in all different f- shapes and forms and um so they just it was their first time ever even realizing that waking up screaming wasn't mm-hmm. something that everybody else did
2: yeah not normal
1: <laughs> so i that I think that's absolutely fantastic because there were there was i mean. Up to four different types of counselors that you would see for various things. There was not one person who could help you with any multiple things. They would say, "Well, let's schedule an appointment with so and so."
2: Like a referral. Um, yep. I, that's another thing is I would really like to eventually do EMDR um, for PTSD because um, I mean I'm open about it, but I, I have PTSD. I've been diagnosed, um, and I've been in therapy for. for six years and EMDR has been the most helpful because it's the most like aggressive and less invasive. You can say as much or as little to your therapist as you want. They're just there to facilitate. Um, are you guys, you guys are familiar with the EMDR? I, yep, yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So like that, that would be my goal, like trauma. Um, well, I guess EMDR. for, for
1: listeners, maybe explain like briefly kind of what EMDR is.
2: Um, I mean, you can help me out with this if you would like. Um, Yeah, so,
0: yeah, people with trauma. So it's the eye movement. I can never remember. Desensitization and reprocessing. Yeah, so it's sometimes when people experience trauma, they repress things or they don't deal with it, and it's kind of on the back burner. So this is something that, like a specific therapy to kind of bring that back forward and rework through these things
2: right like it works on both sides of your hemisphere so you can reprocess it um I mean I think the only thing that I would have liked to know before I started it was um it's gonna get worse before it gets better and unfortunately do you get to relive it um I personally, I ended up liking that part of it because it was kind of an emotional release for me.
0: Yeah. Mm. So instead
2: of just like kind of holding it. Yeah. sure. I don't know.
0: But yeah. Yeah. So. We had someone on here, Riley, who did EMDR.
1: Well, we've actually, unbeknownst to us, had a couple of people on who have who have done yeah. it. Yeah. And are currently going through it. I, I have a friend who I was just on the phone with a couple of days ago um, who was talking about how he just ended his... Um, his sessions because he was like, it's just the same thing over and over again. And I was like, well, that's actually kind of the goal is, mm-hmm. and he was frustrated because the the person, and I love that you said facilitate because that really is the role of it. Um, he was frustrated that the counselor that he was with wasn't offering him any answers. And so I was trying to explain to him that the reason that there's this repetition is because, you're not processing it. So if it looks the same to you, but you're still having these issues, then there's still something you need to overcome so So, that you can move forward.
2: I know that with that, it kind of like you're going to like, the same memories are going to come up over time and time again. They're just, it's kind of going to ebb and flow. So it's going to, be really bad and then you know you might revisit it and then it might not feel as bad that specific time and then maybe a few weeks down the road oh it's bad again like it just kind of and eventually you know it does get better um one drawback I mean the positives outweigh the drawbacks is that your memory during those time frames of trauma I have a hard time remembering
1: oh sure
2: So, um, I mean, like there's like a ten year span that I'm working on, I can't barely remember it. Because I mean, I there's pictures, thankfully, of like, you know, like let's say prom. If there weren't pictures, I don't think I'd be able to remember hardly any of it. Wow. Which is like the unfortunate part, but it's the positives outweigh by far.
1: (laughs) And so I mean What was it about it that made you want to go into that field then? Because some people, they want to get through their thing and then be done with it.
2: So um, even from like a young age, so like I would say like 17, I always wanted to help people. But I kind of had it in the back of my head like, oh, I would really like to be like a therapist or something. But in my head, I was like, well, I'm too messed up to help anybody. So I can't do that. Um, luckily I got myself into therapy at a pretty young age, like 21, which is pretty young. Sure. Um, and I, I just really liked it. Like I, my thought process on it changed because it's kind of like, well, I've got, you know, things to draw off of, obviously I wouldn't, and I wouldn't. Bring that to like my therapy sessions with my clients. Mm -hmm. But, like, you know, I mean, if it's relatable, I can be like, look, I kind of like know what you're going through. Um, I just like really want to help people because there's so many people that are hurting. And, like, if I can help them through that, you know what I mean? Somebody help me. I'm still working on it. I'll always Mm -hmm. be working on myself and think that that's good. I think everybody should seek therapy at some point. That's
0: interesting that you say that because, um, when I talk to patients about therapy and you know there's still like that certain age range like and I'm not like older men that are like Mm oh I don't know (laughs) and I'm like I think everyone in the world should have a therapist and I think therapists should have therapists there should be one person in our life who is non-biased that doesn't Mm -hmm. know the people in our life that we can just release to and just talk to and sometimes they're like Oh, okay. Like I'm like it's just someone that isn't in your life. It's not a family member. It's not a friend. Our friends can say they're unbiased, but they're biased. They're going to always choose our side <laughs> right. or you know agree with us. But it's nice to have someone that's not either. They're not picking sides either. They're just there to kind of work through things with you. So
2: right. And I like that. Like I mean, if you're out of line, they're if it's a good therapist, they're going to call you yes. on it. They're going to be like, ah, no, <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Well, and I mean the with people. And the perception of mental health currently, like we're we're thinking that it's getting better and that things are changing and people are learning more. We still need professionals in those fields, though. Mm -hmm. Being somebody who's empathetic is is good, but having a professional standpoint for somebody who, you know, is dealing with BPD and they don't like your friend isn't going to be able to diagnose you and help you learn behavioral things to better yourself and move forward Right. and same mm-hmm. thing with addiction we're we're getting better at, at viewing addiction for what it is um but just just being a friend isn't going to be enough in in most instances they're going to need professional help so it's it's awesome that, that you're going for that so you were in college when you started to see kind of how addiction can affect people
2: yeah um i mean with like having like you know i don't i don't mind like we talked earlier like dealt with my own trauma um I mean I know that it when you're young it kind of it does mess with your brain and I might like I I think my friends were addicted to things but like at the time it was just like a tunnel vision like, like I said like now I can barely remember it like um in my head I was still very young even at like 21 um, so like being able to like see my like my brother go through that, and, but I recognized it pretty quickly because before my brother had gotten into drugs and alcohol, I had dated that that guy, and um, you know, so I like picked up on it and was, told my parents was like you need to address this like now, and they didn't believe me. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. They were like you know it's basically like a phase, and then eventually he ended up getting in trouble, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, as as you do, you know, you'll get caught eventually, and um it just kind of, you know, it spirals and he wasn't ready for treatment and he wasn't ready to be in recovery and he's still not ready. Hopefully one day that'll happen, but rock bottom looks different for everybody., yeah. so
1: So in, in your personal life, um, did your views on uh, drugs and alcohol change? Did it did like did you stray away from from drinking or anything um, like that?
2: So I around that time as well, actually, like, so th- I mean, I have like I've smoked pot before and then, you know, I've, I've drank um, and that's that's it. And I never had an issue with like, like at one point I used to be like an everyday like, you know, pot user like to sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, but I never had an issue with like stopping or anything like some, you know, some people do like my brother, for instance. Um, so I never like I never strayed away from it. I just saw like how it affects different people. Like some people, um, you know, they're just they're, they're more prone to that and they like the. Uh, the way it, it feels i guess like I don't particularly like not feeling in control mm. oh
1: mm-hmm. sure
0: so i don't partake that's how I am too I don't like not being able to control my body mm-hmm. yeah so
1: you you've said what what are you comfortable with with talking about as far as the trauma that you've you've been through
2: um I'm pretty open about it um I won't go into like detailed specifics for like sure. i mean myself and like other listeners that could be traumatic so
1: absolutely yeah so um at what age did you experience
2: um so uh, the timeline is really rough because with like one of my parents actually it was around the age of like seven but it was like more emotional just very emotionally detached um emotionally abusive like a lot of blame put on me for, for them having me early on in life like I was a high school pregnancy mm. um, and then the other one was age like 12 to the point when I moved out at 19 um, and as far as like just covering the bases I have experienced um, emotional, sexual and um, physical just so or you know.
1: Yeah. Well, and I mean, God, that the world is already tough enough, and being able to come out. uh What we were just talking about the aces. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Have you taken that test before? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, for for people who haven't taken that that test, it's what is it age, or what what was before, the acronym It's, it's always for it?
0: before eighteen. Um, and it's different types of trauma that you can experience. I read through them on, the, on our last. No, I know.
1: Episode. I I was trying. I couldn't remember what the acronym stood for.
0: Oh, adverse childhood experiences. There we
1: go. So, um, yeah. So that stuff is hard enough to come out and be able to have like a functioning life in general. Mm-hmm. To go in a profession where you're saying that you've come out the other side, and then now you want to be able to help people up the ladder so that they can have a normal life is super tough i mean that's 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 just awesome so some of the the questions that i uh i have i guess on behalf of the listeners is um when people think about rock bottom um a lot of times it's romanticized in movies as this like uh, man is sitting a home alone in this house and there's nobody there and so he you know emotionally just feels like he has to change Mm -hmm. whereas like an actual rock bottom can be any number of things like in your experience how far do things have to get for somebody for them to wreck even recognize that something is a rock bottom does that make sense
2: like for clients yeah oh boy i mean it looks so different for everybody um it could be, it could be prison, it could be, um, like, having their kids taken away permanently, it could be, you know, homelessness paired with all of those things, it could, it, it, and then sometimes even then, you know, that's not it for them, like, I mean, hopefully they, you know, they come to their realization before they, you know, they OD or something, I mean, It's like worst case scenario. Like that's terrible.
1: Yeah. Well, Um, and even even with OD, there are people that I met that OD'd like nine times. So even that cannot be perceived as a rock bottom. It can just be a byproduct of their environment. They just say, yeah, that just it happened to Steve. It happened to me. You know, this is just all right. But something that happens as users.
2: I mean, usually, like, if you continue on, though, you know, I mean, there's probably going to be an OD where you don't wake up, Mm -hmm. which is unfortunate, but
1: it's part of the... Or just sustained damage. Like, you eventually, you're shutting down uh, organs and Mm -hmm. parts of your brain, your memory begins to slip away. There's there's, um, actual character changes that happen as well. You might not be able to... Recognize social cues. There's so many bad things that can happen. And with those things makes it even more difficult to perceive what a rock bottom is. So just to let people know, like when when you feel like you're not enough to be like, how come I'm not enough for them to want to change? That's, those are examples as to how far addiction removes them from what actual consequences are and so th- thinking that um yeah you're emotionally not enough for for them to want to change it's not about you at that point they're just so far the addiction has taken them so far that they just can't recognize priorities priorities mm-hmm. yes there we go um yes uh the yeah your priorities get completely skewed and um those people become less important and what becomes important is how can I get high, when can I get high or drunk, um, and everything else is just a, a byproduct. Nothing nothing is as important as the substance. Going through um, that, like how long were you dating that individual?
2: Um... Probably uh, like nine months, not super long, but I ended up like moving in with him and his um, roommate actually, and it like turned out he was he was like um, smoking meth like the entire time. Like I knew about like the weed, and then um, the drinking, um, but I didn't know about that because like he had been an addict for so long that that was his level of normal, mm. like functioning. And at that point, like, I had never even been exposed to any of that. Um, I mean, he was the reason I tried pot. Like, I mean, which that's the most probably mild one. You know, it, if he had he handed me a, you know, something with a, something else in it. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? So I was just very very naive at, at that time. Just very naive. Like, very still trusting. if hard to believe. But, like, of people just of... Um, you know, either you, you trust or, or you don't at all. And I was still very trusting and like had hopes that people were like pretty much good, which, I mean, I still think that for the most part I've learned some things, but, um, but yeah, like nine or 10 ish months, not super long, but long enough to see like what I would be looking at if I had stayed with him. Mm-hmm. Because towards the end it did get like a little bit, like he had pushed me at one point, and I was like, "I know where this goes." Yeah, yeah. you know. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I don't regret the experience just because it was
0: a learning one, and I think it was important for me. Yeah. So. So at one point were you like, "This is the a- area I want to go into." Like, what was that defining moment? Um. So. <laughs> I didn't...
2: I mean, I struggled in high school and stuff, and so I wanted a two-year degree. Like, that's what I wanted. I wanted to go to the tech college, get done. Um, unfortunately, that didn't happen. I didn't find anything that I loved. Um, so I ended up taking all of the psychology classes there, and I ended up being like, oh, well, I guess that two-year degree is not happening, um, Missy. So, And I, I just counseled, like, people um like my friends and then i was like maybe i should do this for a profession and i just like i just like helping people Mm -hmm. unfortunately i have had to put some boundaries up with individuals because once they find out kind of like what i do they're like well can you help me i'm like no i can refer you to go see yeah somebody else because i can't see you and Yeah, you know, I mean, it's just, you can't do that anyways. Well,
1: and in those instances, a lot of times people are looking for, uh, what is it, confirmation bias, where they're, because you're their friend, they're expecting that if if I can get my friend who is also going to school for this to confirm what I think t- to be true, mm-hmm. then, you know, I'll be validated in whatever thing.
2: That actually happened. Like, so I had a um, um a toxic friendship and... We cut ties and I wish them nothing but the best and I love her, but, um, it just wasn't healthy for me at that point. Um, she reached out to me and I had to be incredibly blunt with her because she's also, you know, um, active addict, struggling back and forth through like recovery and, um, you know, she wanted me to tell her like what she wanted to hear and I was very blunt with her about you know you have to want it basically and you're not there yet like and it also was like very apparent that she had said at one point um you're like the sweetest and nicest most caring person that I know and it was kind of like that's sweet but I'm not like A mat for you to walk on, just because I'm very caring. Mm -hmm. So, like setting up those boundaries was really hard at some points, especially like friends and family. Like those are the hardest, I think, because it's you know because then they can turn around and use the manipulation tactic of you don't you don't love me. My brother used that one a lot. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, When he was
1: younger, we 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 had somebody on recently as well, um, who part of their addiction was was an eating disorder. Um, do you see much of that in, in what you're doing currently?
2: So, I mean, uh, you know, most commonly you see it, it's seen with women. Um, when I was younger, like I did have, I mean, I was never diagnosed, but I know that that's what it was, um, was an eating disorder. And it was never about like, it, for, for me, I know a lot of people, focus like the number on the scale like the lower you can get it the like equates success oh sure you know um it was more of like well this is the only thing in my life that i can control and i was also in sports so um but i was always really small so it wasn't about it wasn't about that but we see that a lot too like they're very like co-occurring like i mean it's the same i believe i read it it's on the same um Oh my goodness! What word am I looking for? Basically, the same like wavelength where addiction oh, sure. is um, in the brain is eating disorders because it's all about behaviors. Did and... those same receptors? Yeah, thank you. <laughs> We're both just like yeah, struggling. I was on say the... you
1: help me with the other <laughs> word, I help you.
0: <laughs> Monday and <laughs> <laughs> a holiday, remember? Yeah. <laughs> we
1: we've talked about that that whole sense of control thing is is huge, um, and that goes back to dealing with trauma and things when when somebody is uh affecting your life in a way that you feel no control when you find something that you are in control of it's very hard to relinquish that control because you know it's introduced as something something that you finally have control over
2: well and it's kind of like i mean that was it was like what i had control over but i do find myself still when i'm really stressed out like i I go back to those like old coping mechanisms and I'm like, Oh, stop it. Like go eat like a sandwich, you know? Um, it's just, it's just like, I have to like actively think about it. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I work out now, which really helps actually. Um, I mean, and you know, it's really good for you and, releases like stress and um you know raises those like dopamine and serotonin levels which is good like anti-anxiety meds but without the medication yeah
0: (laughs) yeah one thing we've talked about too is people with treatment unless it's court ordered like Mm. you kind of have to go into treatment you know wanting it oh yeah like people can't get forced and we because I work in the ER and we, I deal with a lot of family members. We're like, no, you need to put them into treatment. And I don't think people understand it's a process. Like, It's not like in the movies where it's like, I'm going to go check myself in. It's like, mm. no, it's a process. First of all, do they want treatment? Because if they're going to go into treatment not wanting it, they're not going to get anything really out of it. Right. Even if they're court ordered, doesn't mean they're going to get anything out of treatment. Okay. Half the time, those are the ones that... Those are the ones that know how to play the game. They sure do. Yep. Yeah. Yep. yep. And then um, there's a process you have to do a, a CD assessment, rule 25, mm-hmm. to determine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think you want to explain a little bit. Do you, like, do you do rule 25s? Yep. Okay. So do you yep. want to kind of explain the process? Like, if someone's coming um, to you saying, all right, I'm ready for treatment. Like, what kind is the process?
2: I mean... I'm- can I have I think you pull
1: I've... the mic just a little bit closer? Sorry. No, you oh, go. you're good.
2: Um, <laughs> I think that more often than not, yeah, they are court ordered depending on the type of treatment. But um, So they just come in and say, like, I need an assessment done, um, which basically gets, you know, your use history, um, frequency, like amount, um, like how long, um, family history, like You know, is there any addiction there? Was there any abuse? Was there um, any of that? And then uh, based on the information, hopefully they're telling the truth, Um, you know, we can diagnose like what severity level they're at and what level of care that they need. Um, and then after that comes a comprehensive assessment, which is essentially the same thing. It's just got some mental health aspects added in there that's a little more in-depth. Um, I believe Rule 25 is like they're kind of making their way out. I think that's um, what I've heard. It's, yeah. I mean, the state, I believe, requires them if you have state insurance. But um, otherwise, like, I mean, we're essentially just doing a Rule 25 over again. Um, but yeah, so that'll indicate on, you know, do you need like intensive inpatients for like six months or, you know, um, and then it'll depend like how many times have you been to treatment as well? Like how many, um, you know, arrests and such.
1: Sure. And I mean, you're, what, what are you looking for? Um, like what are signs that, um, are positive indicators that somebody might be seeking treatment because there's a lot of roadblocks and and people not wanting to admit their amount of use and things like that. But like, what are some things that kind of make you hopeful that you'll be able to get somebody into into treatment?
2: You can usually tell if somebody's being honest unless they played the game a lot. Okay. Um, and you can I mean and and you can always tell like when they're if if they're not too because like they're really vague. Usually, it's more of a conversation happening. Um, when somebody when you find somebody that's like actually ready, um, mm. because they're more open about it. They're like, look, yeah, this is my issue. Like, um, cause if they're honest, I mean, that will, I mean, if you're telling me half the story, well, i might say that you only need like, you know, medium intensity outpatient when in reality, like you're going to leave my office and you're going to go use as soon as you walk out the front door, you know? I mean, that's just, it's just going to depend It looks different for everybody. Um, Some people are really open. Some people are still really closed off, but they know they need help. Mm -hmm. I mean, it just depends.
1: And I mean, how long have you been at the the facility that you're at?
2: Um, So I'm in a job transition currently. Oh, okay. Um, I'll be starting soon at this other place. Um, but the one I'm at right now, I think I've been at six months, but I interned with that facility in the adult unit. I'm not going to say where. Yeah, no, that's um fine. But, um, and I worked with women.
1: Oh, okay. That's uh, another thing that like AA, um, for whatever reason, is like notoriously for men. And people don't outright say that, but it's majority of what you see. Mm-hmm. And so... And I think it's difficult for women because um, there's studies that show that, like, men just go. They show up in whatever they're wearing. They don't do (laughs) their hair up or anything like that. But with women, because there's less of them in these groups, they feel like this obligation to present. And so there's this added, you know, aspect of, of effort that they have to put in, which sucks because really all you should be focusing on is is recovery, but, um, so, when, when working with women, are there other obstacles that you're trying to help people overcome, uh, beyond their addiction? Um,
2: so, like, um, that was my second, like, internship. Uh, I think that it was the most helpful for me, um, compared to my first one, because my first one was an outpatient. um, we're working with a lot of trauma, a lot of trauma, a lot of sexual abuse, a lot of physical abuse, a lot of, um, childhood trauma. Um, most of them have lost their kids. Um, and they're like, you know, trying to get them back or, you know, whatever their situation is. So, I mean, we've got like all of those barriers, um, and it's definitely co-occurring. And I will say like my first week interning there, um, there was a group that focused on grief and loss and for my first week back at like internship oh my holy moly I left that day like I cried in my car because like secondary trauma Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I was like oh my gosh I picked the wrong field I'm quitting like I mean so I mean I know there's a well from what I've heard from clients there's a misconception and they think that like my life is perfect it's like it's definitely not perfect Yep. like yep so um I mean there's all those things I found it much harder to work with women but I liked it better
0: I loved working with adolescents I worked at um an adolescent hospital in the cities for two years before I moved to Centricare. um and I loved working with kids, but I feel like a lot of the trauma that I endured happened in my adolescence, and it didn't. I was with a patient who let out like really horrific things, and I was the first person to hear it. And of course, when you're the first person, you have to report all these things. Mm-hmm. And I, it's like you do get that secondary trauma because it's like then you question like, have I actually dealt with my own trauma? And then I actually had to reinitiate therapy again to kind of rework through these things because it was like, whoa. And then you do second like. I went into mental health to help people because I had an encounter with a nurse who changed my, you know, like just said, I don't even remember what she said, but helped me so much. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to work in psychiatric nursing and help other kids who felt lost. And it's like, I think I chose the wrong career. Like, <laughs> how am I going to listen to these kids tell me these horrible stories and then having to report it? And then you're worried about these people yeah. that you have to report things on, like what's going to happen. But legally we have to
2: right yeah. i mean i i like kids i don't think i would be able to work with them yeah i think that would be too difficult like it's hard enough to hear about like these adults that are talking about like their childhood and what happened and i'm like oh lord um yeah, it, yeah. like that was that was a, that was my first week back and you know i held it together really well i thought and then you know, because there are facilitators, I'm, I'm an intern at that point, um, that they stopped me before I walked out the door. It was time to go. I was like, just make it to your car, make Mm -hmm. it to your car. (laughs) And they asked, how are you doing? Oh boy. It was gone. It was done, done and over with after that question. You know what I mean? Um, I mean, it was, I, I, I mean, it was a good
0: experience, but, um, so what got you to go back the next week then?
2: I cried a lot yeah <laughs> if, you want my, if you want my real answer i cried a lot and said i don't wanna and gave myself that time luckily it was a thursday i didn't have to go back the next day on friday yeah um so uh and i was also like at a peak point in my emdr at that point so that was like just oh wow double awesome oh, yeah. um i mean it was fine like you know, for a little while, I, I'd, you know, I'll say pout and just be like, I don't want to I can't do this. And then eventually, you know, mentally came around and be like, yeah, you can. You got this like you got right. this far. Like, let's go. Yeah. Yeah. You know,
1: well, something that I always think about when um, when I talk with people who work in the mental health field um, is you telling me about when you were in nursing school and one of the teachers asked who was going into mental health. And you were one of two people. Only person. Only person. Class of
0: thirty-two. What? Yep, I was the only person that raised my hand saying I wanted to work in mental health. No, I know it's so sad. And mental health, like especially nursing, is such a revolving door. Like it's easy to get into because a lot of people don't want to work in it. So people will come in and do their six months, get their experience, and then they move forward. But. So I was the only one that raised my hand that day. I knew I was going to go into mental health forever. Either I was going to be a psychologist or a psychiatrist, and then I'm like, I'm going to be a psychiatric nurse. And then um, she looked at everyone in the class and says, it does not matter what unit you work on. You can be on family birthing. You can be on med surge. You will always work with a patient who has mental health diagnoses, and you're going to need to know how to treat them. Mm-hmm. And I was like, amen. Because then we did our birthing. So I had mental health and birthing in the same semester. And I went to the birthing unit and I was working with a mom who just delivered. They were not giving her Zoloft the whole time she was in there. She was in there for days and she was starting to decline. And I was the one that was like, why isn't she getting her medication? The doctor okayed her to have it while she was pregnant. Mm -hmm. Like you guys haven't given it to her for three days. And now we're worried about postpartum. And they're like, oh, no one pointed that out. Exactly. Not to mention with the withdrawal. Yeah. So I'm like, like, and she was on a big, you know, high dose too. It's like, see, we're on family birthing. You think that it's just about birthing a child? No, you're still taking care of everything. Someone, right. especially mental health after you know birth. But yeah, it's it was very eye opening for a lot of my classmates. Like, what? So we're not just gonna look at surgeries and this and that. And it's like, no. Like, one in how many people have a mental health diagnosis? Well, right and it's kind of like I mean like the old medical model like I
2: just can't um I, I mean if like physic physically like let's say you're a really active person and you like broke your leg and you can't move around like that can cause like depression yeah. if you're depressed that can cause like other it's physical yeah yeah it's yeah. just it's all connected like we need to have a more like connected m- model like i yeah. mean you yeah. can't just separate them that's not how this
0: works no like yeah. no no i thought it was great that my teacher did say that because it was just like because everyone may like they didn't make fun of me but they're like oh we're not gonna have to compete with jobs with her because she's gonna want to go into mental health that's like that's great i said but because i want to be there that means i'm going to be a more compassionate person to these people all well, right yes, yeah. and, and to think that none of you guys have ever struggled with any mental health and would want someone that also has had some, you know, yeah, yeah. That's I mean, and there's st- it's still very much stigmatized, it's unfortunately. So and yes. I don't understand that. I don't all. either. Like, no, and I see it even like with some providers I've worked with in the past. It's like they still have this stigma of mental health and crazy and this and that. It's like you can't think that way. Like it took my dad a really long time. My dad's sixty seven. Oh she's yeah. And he um, he like couldn't understand why I wanted to go into mental health. And then I had my struggles as a teenager. I was hospitalized. I came out. And the first thing he said to me was, did you learn your lesson? And it's just like, that's not why it wasn't. The- my dad didn't come visit me. My mom and my mom was the only one that came to visit me. Like no other kids' parents visited. It was very, I I would never take that experience back for anything, but my dad was still so shut off to mental health, which made no sense to me because he was an officer and you're going to deal with mental health as an officer. Yeah. But as we've gotten older, like he's gotten more understanding. He he's made comments where we've had had conversations. I had a patient that I lost to suicide oh. and he would make like offhand comments like, well, that's one less person in this world. And it's like, that's not like that's a family member. That's someone like. I I was upset about the whole situation. Yeah, so, that's like um I had a family member that struggled with alcohol addiction. Um, we didn't know that for years. Like okay. we just thought her prescription meds were weird because she's not she has severe migraines. She's been or they gosh I'm screwing this up. You're gonna be fine. Okay, they uh they they're not out about it just with family but they um was they were on migraine meds lots of controlled substances so it's like is it your meds why and then um had seizures at work oh so that's when we found out well we went to an er the doctor said it's just low blood pressure was going to discharge them i had to fight with the doctor he still discharged her brought her brought them to a different facility um And that's when the doctor walked in and was like, you're going through the alcohol withdrawals.
1: Well, um, that individual had a seizure in the car with with me
0: on the way to the other hospital. Oh, my gosh. And I work with this provider often and the way he, he just came in and just said, this is what's going on. And I was I was so mad at first. I'm like, who does he think he is? That is not what's going on. And then I had to be the bad guy and have that person admit to that. They were for years. None of us knew. Um. And I think that had to also open um, people's minds about, you know, alcohol and all that. Because lots of trauma, lots of trauma in mm-hmm. childhood that was never worked through. and never addressed. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I was um, talking with a friend. Uh, it's been two or three weeks now. But, um, uh, hair on me? Or? Dog hair. <laughs> but, um... Well, I mean, first, let me point out uh, my friend Alex, who we are uh, embracing in that beautiful photo right there. He's my best friend. (laughs) (laughs) But he had pointed out that um, when I was heavy in my use, that uh, I would often say, like, sarcastically say that I was an addict and that I had a drinking problem. And he would say, sure, you are drinking too much. But what's the other problem? What's the other thing that you're not addressing? And when he brought that up, when we had him on here, it made me think more about, I can't think of a single person that I was in treatment with that didn't have something else, some other underlying issue. There were some people that hit it well for a little while, but Mm -hmm. then when it came to them having to share their story, it was like, oh, you just put on a really good front. And so when I was helping this friend a few weeks ago, um, he, he kept wanting to kind of... Because we would do this thing where we would pitch what I call the darkness back and forth. We both have had really shitty pasts, and we just kind of would lob that shit back and forth at each other without any type of resolve. It would just be like, hey, isn't it crazy that we both went through this stuff? And yeah, it is. It, anyways, I'll talk to you next week or whatever. So when I went and saw him physically... That's what prompted me to start to go, I get that you drink too much. I get that you're using drugs, but what, what hurts right now? Mm -hmm. And he kind of took a look at his life and was like everything. And I was like, okay, so how do we get you to a happy and content place? What, what does happiness look like to you or what does content look like to you? And it can be really simple things like waking up and not feeling sick. That can be all the content that you need or knowing um, what you're going to be doing that day. Like there's really simple things that you can put in place to start to just get familiar with being content rather than waking up and just dreading every single day Mm -hmm. Um, because those things feed into that addiction your addiction goes well we know what either makes us forget about that um because blacking out like when people say that they they were blackout drunks they're not blackout drunks because they like to get to that place but they get to skip over that amount of time mm-hmm. and they it's a great thing that they don't remember what happened because it's just furthering that like well at least if something bad happened I don't have to remember it and I don't have to stew in that anxiety of 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 what I did so there's a there's just so much when it comes to mental health and addiction and how they can feed off of one another and we yeah we talk about how important that is all the time so um when like I said before like how people ask um what the the easy fixes basically. What can I do for that? How do I get my sister to recognize that she's an alcoholic? Or how can I get my brother to admit that he's an addict? Like the, what when people throw that at you, what's your response?
2: <laughs> I mean, like the the short and sweet blunt version is you can't. Mm-hmm. Like you can't. Like they have to come around to that realization. Hopefully it happens. I mean, and the biggest thing is just, you know, be a support, but don't be an enabler. Mm-hmm. And there's a difference. Um, you know, like with some people in my life, I can say, I love you, you know, and I'll be there for you, but no, I'm not going to give you a ride here. I'm not going to give you money here for this and that, you know, even though they're using it probably for something else, of course. But, um, which then in turn, I have been turned around to be the bad guy. Mm-hmm. And um, at first, that was a real shock for me. And it really does hurt, especially when um, it's somebody that you care about or is a family member. And they do have that like little heartstring pull, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, that's the short answer is you can't. And like coming to like accept that
1: mm-hmm.
2: is really hard. It's really hard. My parents aren't there. Like, they still, they still enable.
1: Yeah. Um, well, I mean, there's basic things that people don't even recognize as enabling. People often think that enabling means you're going out, buying the substance for them, and then giving them that thing, and that's enabling. Enabling is actually really basic things.
2: Yeah, like, oh, you can stay here because you don't have a place to live. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, they're going to be homeless. Well, how did they end up that way? I, I mean... Like, at fr- like I can understand like you know I, I'm trying to help but at, at what point I hate to say it but at what point do you cut the cord like because that's gonna like toxicity is gonna leak into your life and you know you might love that person but you also have to love you mm-hmm. like what's well, gonna be healthy for me too
0: so. Yeah,
1: it's something that people don't want to hear is um or yeah people hate when I say this but um, at a certain point, you may have to physically remove yourself from the equation. Mm-hmm. Um, if, and I'm, I'm lucky in that I had a support system and Kim knowing what she knows and uh, being open to learning things so that we can, you know, uh, stay together as a family. I'm unbelievably grateful for that. However, not every addict is as open to the information that's given to them to want to do better. After, because you can tell them all of the facts right. and they it's still because they they don't realize that their addiction makes them think that they have this um like um i don't I hate to say romantic but it is kind of a romantic relationship with their addiction so you really do feel like you're like no i I know myself and I know that it's not because I'm an addict. It's because I just really enjoy it. There's, we have a relationship together, so they'll be dismissive about stuff and continue to, to, to go down that road, even though you've, man, gone, the, the families that I've met who went above and beyond and stuck their neck out and put life on hold to try and help these people. Um, them thinking about r- removing themselves when they've become so invested. That's the word I was looking for. Sorry. I was like kind of going around in circles <laughs> when you've invested so much into someone and then to think that you have to then remove yourself from it. There's a lot of people that think because I've done that, I can't, I'm, I'm, I'm too, I'm in too deep. I got to stick it out, mm-hmm. but there's really dangerous things that can happen. Um, And people don't realize that you can experience trauma just by being around them with those things. Um, Emotionally having to invest so much into someone and then seeing them burn you time and time again can, can cause you personal trauma as well. So do people ever professionally recommend actually removing them, removing this person who's saying, how can I get them to admit that they're an addict At what point do you say you've got to get out of there?
2: Um, I mean, I don't think I've ever said like you should remove yourself, but I think that I've said you need to like start to build like stronger boundaries for yourself. Mm -hmm. Like you can still like you can still love that person from afar. (laughs) Like, yeah, well, I guess that's that's more
1: what I mean, like because some people like live with them or are constantly Um, giving them rides and things in, in that regard
2: um i mean yeah like b- boundaries is a big one um it's gonna be i think harder especially if they're parents because that's their kid like you know mm-hmm. they're yeah. for the most part i would say generalize generalizing it is parents want to take care of said child um but at what point do you realize that, like f- you know if they're underage that's a different situation oh, sure. but um but as adults Yeah, yeah. as adults where you I feel like
0: I see a lot of that's a lot what I've seen the ER is the parent it's always like the parent and it can be like a 40-year-old 50-year-old and yeah. the parents are coming in like you need to put them in treatment I don't know like I can't help them anymore it's like no one's saying you have to
2: Right like it's I mean it's just like it's really tough thing because you want to help but you can't help yeah um and i mean along with like the mental health side of that i know like so there's a stigma with mental health but then there's like an added stigma if you're an addict Mm -hmm. you're a bad person if you're an addict and that's not true at all like like these are good people um but they're just you know they're driven by like addiction and i need to feed that and they're not thinking about like well if i do this this is going to hurt this other person right. um i mean you're not you when you're using yeah had you not been using would you have done that probably not
0: and with that stigma i had a um patient tell me once that um it doesn't matter if i'm telling the truth to the police about being robbed and some of the stories you hear you're like i could see that actually happening i don't Mm -hmm. think this is some delusional thought, like thought because you hear these stories you read things in the news you're like yeah it doesn't matter how long i'm sober and i can prove that i'm sober if i relapse and i tell the police that something happened they will never believe me even when i'm sober because they will always classify me as a drug addict wow and i'm like and he goes, I, and he goes, and I do not expect you to ever understand that. And that hurt. Like it's cause I don't, I bet right. I could walk up to an officer and say, I think that this is happening in my neighbor's house. They're doing these kinds of things. And that officer will be like, we're going to investigate that. Not immediately take me to the emergency room and say I'm a delusional person. Right. Yeah. But I mean, because someone has a history of anything, they'll, and it's like that stigma is so much there and the fact that he's that person said doesn't matter how long i can prove i'm sober they'll never believe me i'm like wow yeah i can
2: i've heard some stories that are very like what
0: yeah
1: man I, I, that's i mean I, people t- uh, the addicts that i'm uh, in recovery that i that i still communicate with um that's said a lot too is that when somebody relapses, um, they treat them. Yeah, it, it is almost like a criminal. Like they're like, of, of course you would because you've done this in the past. Like it, it's a bummer to think that rather than somebody saying, what was it that that made you want to do that? Mm-hmm. They just immediately go, you fucking addict. Of course, you're going to. You know, and so this is just going to be forever. Why, why care at all?
2: Well, and relapse is part of recovery. I mean, it's like almost unheard of to hear of like somebody that is like in recovery that didn't relapse on their way there, Mm. or oh, I've only been to treatment one time. That that's not the norm. Like not at all.
1: Yeah, what it's um five percent is like the highest statistic right now, as far as people who go through recovery and don't relapse, it's an incredibly low number, Yeah, which I mean, we're, I mean, doing this podcast is something that on a weekly basis, at least once a week that forces us to assess where I'm at and to make sure that we're, we're doing what we can to, to make sure that that doesn't happen. And it scares the shit out of me. Like before I even left treatment, I remember Kim and I talked. I, th- those were like the biggest fears that I had was everybody. There was one other person that, that hadn't, um, uh, I lied, two people that hadn't relapsed. And we were like, how do we, how do we protect ourselves once we get out of here? How, how the fuck are we going to stay safe? And, and that was something that I, I was really worried about. It's and I don't I don't know if I've said this, but like I, I don't want to admit that relapse is like something that could happen to me because I I want to act like like it's not an option. I'm and I, I think you should have that mentality, but to what you're saying, like to give yourself the grace or forgiveness that because you relapse doesn't mean that you can't still, be successful in sobriety later on in life and right and, and there's a forward. difference
2: between like a lapse and a relapse oh. like a lapse is like okay you're doc i had a drink okay i got you know i got drunk today like a relapse is like you know it you're just you know ball the walls basically back to where you were um i mean people come back from a lapse um it's the relapse that usually ends them and like they probably have to go back to treatment or whatever Um, that's
1: interesting so I guess yeah I'd kind of forgotten about the distinction between a a lapse or a slip up versus an actual relapse right that's interesting that actually kind of makes me feel better thinking (laughs) of it in that regard because I do when I think of like if I have a, a drink or if I allow myself to do XYZ that I don't I don't have um, I'm incapable of moderation mm-hmm. and that's like with all things like energy drinks <laughs> even water like um, it, like I just like have a compulsion a, yeah right? yep a very compulsive and, and if something's there I, I do it kind of thing or I we just threw it. all the
0: candy in our house away <laughs> yesterday because he couldn't control how much candy he was eating I mean there's a reason I don't have chips in my house
2: I'll eat the whole bag
1: yeah, it's, it's I, a thing. Like yeah, I mean, it's a
2: yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I'll I'll say like it, it kind of s- sounds maybe weird. It kind of makes me happy that like before you left treatment, you were scared because like it's the cocky ones that are like, "I got this. Like I'm recovered now." That relapse. If you're scared, that means like you know that like what you have to gain from sobriety and um, what you're getting versus like reaching for that drink um, is is better um because I already know which is it's unfortunate but that the, the people that are like yep I got this you just made a life changing decision and you've only been here for four weeks mmm I mean, you know what I mean? Like, half of the problem, I think, is the system's broken. So you can't just, like, go into inpatient treatment, no substances, no outer world, like, contact with, like, you know, people on the streets. And then, oh, you're sober. We're going to push you on out into the world that you just came from and expect you to be successful on your own. Like, that's just not how that works. Like, that's why, like, I mean, success rates are...
0: Very like, low. Yeah.
2: yeah. Um. I mean, I think that, like, the step out process is is good because then you still have that, like, little security blanket, you know what I mean? Yeah. And then you can kind of work your way back into the world and, like, m- change slowly because change doesn't happen quick like that. Like, that's yeah. just not how we like, humans
1: are. Well, it's something that I've, I've said it on here a few times, but something that was so ironic <clears throat> so we would we would go into this um, auditorium uh, three times a day and somebody would speak. And there was this one lady who would uh, would say, raise your hand if this is your first time in treatment. Raise your hand if this is your second and like would go down the line. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and and she would like showcase how normal relapses or like elapses. And she would say, um, that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. And to me, I was like, you're not recognizing that. that's a reflection on you guys as well. Like whatever it is that you're doing, you're showcasing right now that it's not working. Mm-hmm. So how can you say this type of, like, I get what they're trying to say, but really you're, A lot of them don't stay in contact with these people when they leave.
2: Well, right. Like, I mean, they basically just get booted out and said, good luck. Like, I mean, that's how it it feels. And um, I mean, I don't know what your experience like was in treatment, but um, a lot of LADCs are very like parole officer ish. Uh um in like demeanor like they're very like this is what you're gonna do this is how you're gonna do it if you don't do this then x y and z consequence which I mean for some people that might work but um I mean if I was like what switched in that I, that wouldn't work for me. I'd be like f you <laughs> I'm gonna do what I want like you know that just yeah. doesn't work for me like your compassion is just you know a necessity like that might work for some people it doesn't that would not work for me um, sure. I got a lot of good feedback on that. It's just like I view the person first, and then you know the addict or problem second. Like ultimately, like we're all people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, especially with like ages eight, people that have been in the field a while that should probably get out. Um, they're very like that by the book. Yeah, very the book like.
1: Well, and people I- become jaded because when it is your job and you're doing it day in day out it is easy to start to look at people as numbers versus it's, it's hard to maintain that compassionate level. I'm lucky that the CDC person that I met with unbelievably compassionate and she's basically the reason why I was like willing to go and actually go into treatment. Um, But yeah, main maintaining that compassion, it, it does. And to go back to what you guys were saying about like, therapists should have therapists like Mm -hmm. you're not because you went to school for it does not mean you're exempt from becoming jaded to these things eventually
0: yeah and I'm very open like I work in mental health I help people get treatment whatever kind of treatment they need for their mental health and a couple weeks ago I was having panic attacks I was so depressed I was crying didn't feel like getting out of bed and I'm, I'm very, well, I'm not open obviously with my patients cause well, you, 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 but like I'm open with everyone, even my coworkers. Like I struggle, I have severe anxiety and I have depression and I don't have some days I'm going to have bad days, but that I feel like that makes us more real to people too that I'm not oh, yeah. walking in like, I don't get what it's like to have a panic attack. Oh, you feel like you're dying. You feel like you can't breathe. Oh, get over it. Like no, no. So I feel like that helps, like especially like family experience and seeing things like that. It helps. Whereas I feel like sometimes, and this isn't always the case, but I feel like sometimes people go into a field because it sounds interesting, or Mm -hmm. I might get paid really well. But then there, yeah, exactly. (laughs) But there's not that compassion there. It's like, cool. I have these many assessments I need to do today. I don't want to sit and try to get to know you. I'm just going to answer the questions and that's it. I don't want to know a whole lot about your life. Oh
2: my gosh. If that was my, oh, I'm, I'm a nosy bitch. Okay. Like, like, I want to, like, I mean, I feel like you can't be a curious person and like, you you have to be curious about other people in order to like, want to hear like, So, tell me about all these terrible things. Like, (laughs) I mean, I don't want them to tell me terrible things, but, I mean, they're not... They didn't get in my office because they, you know, had an easy life, you know? Um, But I know, like, most of them, like, medication. Like, they're on medication for, like, anxiety and such. And I do think that... Because, I mean, I've got anxiety and depression and stuff. Um, One thing that I wish... Um, I would have been more educated on before I decided. Oh yeah, I'll take these these pills, right? Um, was the getting off of them process mm-hmm. if I ever mm. wanted to? I didn't know that there was withdrawal. I didn't know that that was a thing. Brain
0: zaps. Oh so, yeah. yeah, like
2: I mean, I I uh, I can't get off of it. I can't get off of it. And I mean, it, maybe eventually, it's not on yeah. my main priority list at the moment. But um, I think that client-informed care is so important like i mean i felt bamboozled okay like my doctor didn't tell me this granted when i got on i was like 20
0: but yeah
2: you know um i just think that being really open with your with your clients being like look here your options yeah i'm gonna lay them out for you and you can pick which path is best for you regardless of what i think
0: it's not about me it's not about me it's about you yeah i think too with you being open and compassionate too say someone comes in they're closed off they're like i'm gonna not tell her all the truth blah blah blah. and you just have that open wanting to hear them just having that conversation i think helps break their walls down like this person actually seems like they (laughs) care about me and it's not by the book they're not sitting there like okay yep 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 you're like let's have a conversation i don't know i think that helps breaks people's walls down too where it's Mm -hmm. like okay
2: it's more like you're a person. Yeah. Like, so a therapist to LADC, I mean, um, LADCs are r- traditionally a little rougher. Therapists are a little more compassionate, more personable in my experience. That's not everybody, of course. Um, if you use self-disclosure in, like, an appropriate way, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it, like, almost normalizes their experiences. Therefore, they're like oh, well, shit. (laughs) Yeah. She, you know, she gets it, sort of. Like, you know, she's a person too. I'm a person. And it kind of like, it's more of a conversation rather. I'm going to analyze you and... Act like I'm better than you. Mm Sure. And that's not the case at all because I could easily, roles could be easily reversed. Yeah. Easily. Yeah. So, I mean, like, that was another thing that at my internship, working with those women. Like, a lot of those women are around my age. So I was like, that could that could be me yeah like especially with like so many things that were super similar with their stories and i was like that that literally could have been me you know
1: yeah so well i mean that's that's something that that i've said before too is like so i've been on an adult mental health unit twice now um for for suicide attempts and the way that the staff treated me was no different than any other patient there and people wouldn't guess that I've been on those units before and that I've, I've stayed for as long as I have. So the line between what is perceived to be as like a severe mental health issue and what people perceive as normal is very thin Mm -hmm. and you can fall to one way and they're not, they don't have the time to, I mean on those units, it's obviously a little more dire. um, But they don't have the time to really treat you differently um, in the way that you think you should be all I just had, I was depressed and this and that. And so right. just, I just, I let me have shoelaces. Let me be able to do these things. And they don't have time for that. You are the same as everybody else in there. And I think that kind of experience is really humbling too, to be like, I mean, regardless of where you're at, yeah, you're going <laughs> to, and the other scary thing was that like the longer that you're there, the more you feel like you belong there and like you deserve to be there. And it was before I kind of started to learn more about my personal, There, like we always attributed my stuff to like physical things. And that's why um, I was super depressed and, and all these things. But really I have like a genuine chemical imbalance and I'm lucky that like when I learn those things, I internalize it as, okay, so then when I'm feeling this way, I need to remember that it might not be what it looks like to me. Like Mm -hmm. it might not have as much weight as I, as my anxiety is making it feel like it has right now. And, and those things help me help me through those things. And to come full circle (laughs) helps me when I'm talking with other people to say, um, to, to be able to get personal and I'm lucky that I, I'm not a professional. So I am able to divulge more about myself to, to people than um, somebody who has to do it professionally. Um, but man, making people feel like they're not alone is, is huge. Yeah. And I think that helps in addiction too, because like I said, most of that stuff is not just, you're not just drinking. You're not just using drugs. There's, almost always an underlying issue that needs to be dealt with. And if you can, when I, when I talk to people and I say, like I was talking about that friend when I was like, what, you know, what hurts or what's going to make you happy rather than saying, how can we get you to stop drinking? That feels like nagging. Mm -hmm. And I can't think of a single addict who was like, oh, you know what? They (laughs) nagged me enough. And I just was (laughs) like, I'm ready to change. Um, It's when people are like, you know what is it that that hurts right now because most of these people are hurting
2: oh yeah like completely i do have one question for you both like when you got your diagnosis was it like a did you feel like oh that makes sense or was it more of um this
0: defines me now
1: oh oh sure
0: chris is he's a different kind of person like from the patient not like in a mean way not a mean way but like then the patients I've dealt with because a lot of times they do get that diagnosis and they're like okay this is it this is my rest of my life this is this where Chris looks very scientifically in it and he's like well that explains why I've done this this and this and this and this and then he doesn't throw it out like well I have this disorder and that's why I act this way
1: he's like but I I used to be that way he
0: used to until he went to treatment yeah
1: so when people would throw things at me or when I would um, almost like a hypochondriac, but uh, wait, is that the right word? Yeah, hypochondriac, but like for mental health, mm-hmm. I would look at stuff and, and internalize. Like I cried when I found out that I have astigmatism in my eye, like which is so common mm-hmm. and so not crippling, but I would put so much emotional weight on things mm-hmm. um, where when when this stuff started to happen, yeah, for some reason – I re, yeah rather than it it having some type of i don't know like
2: i just asked because for, so for some clients it's very like this now defines mm-hmm. who i am pull that a little closer <laughs> <laughs> better yeah okay uh well for some clients it's like this now defines like who i am um for for me it was like oh well that makes sense like, it it was, at first I was very, like, because I had never been to therapy before, I didn't know that she was, like, secretly diagnosing yeah. me. Um, sneaky little person. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, and she was like, well, you have this, this, and this. And I was like, well, what does well, that mean? Well, full
1: disclosure, so I have major depression, ADHD, anxiety, and... Cluster
0: B, traits, alcohol use a disorder, severe rule out bipolar disorder. Um, but the doctor was like, he needs to be sober for six months to, yeah, Determine. which you probably understand with the bipolar. Yeah. Well, yeah. And,
1: and the, the stuff that I've learned about bipolar disorder, and obviously there's, that there's a wide array of what that can mean for, I can hear that. I'm the,
0: sorry. <laughs> I fidget. I can't um,
1: But I, when, when I started to, to learn what that, meant Mm -hmm. uh, because I would go well and like codependency issues Um, there was a lot of like self-righteous tendencies and um, these these things where I would feel like I had to white knight my way into scenarios and people would agree with me because I feel so passionately about it Uh, when really that's just a part of who I am I may feel strongly about these things that doesn't mean like I'm some type of savior that can actually go in and, and change those things. And so that's a, a part of, um, I mean, we've said it a few times that I, I need to go in to get like an official diagnosis. But um, when you understand those things, those things start to change and become less aggressive too, I feel like. Does that make sense?
2: Um. I mean, I think I know kind of what you're, what you're saying. Like
1: the, the, um, the side effects or the traits of whatever that diagnosis is. If you're able to accept those things, I think that they're, um, less intense.
2: Okay. Yeah. And I also think that like, I agree with you there and then, um, realizing that that's not going to be, that doesn't define you and you can still change it. Yeah. Um, I mean, for me at first, you know, it was just like, oh, this is who I am now. And then over time, it was like, oh, well, this is why I do that and this and the other thing. And it was more about, like, understanding. And then the fact that, I mean, yeah, I have a PTSD diagnosis, but that doesn't mean I always will. Oh. So, I mean, once you work through it and address all those things, like, some things might stay. Like, um... Like, for instance, like, if I'm at a store, I know where all the exits are. Oh. I know where all the exits are. Okay. Like, um, I've never, like, met anyone, like, on a date that I didn't drive myself. Um, You know, like, I mean, I'll be honest. I texted my friend your address just in case. Sure. Like, yeah. I mean, it's just, like, and these are things that, like, you don't really think about. They're just kind of, like... But those things I don't think are a bad thing. No. It's like the hypervigilance, like with the anxiety, that becomes a bad thing. Yeah, um, But those are like good things because like, well, what if... That you means know? your
0: fight or flight's just activated then if you're... Yeah. That, yeah,
2: yeah right. I mean, unfortunately, it's, like, always yeah. activated to some extent. So then extent. It, exha-
0: it exhausts your oh, body yeah. and your brain. Yeah.
2: yeah, which is why, like, I also work out because, like, if I, like, I can tell I haven't worked out in, like, a couple of days because, like, my anxiety's a little bit higher than normal. Mm-hmm. Like, it's tolerable. Um, but, like, it definitely... It helps. Yeah. Gets that, you know, fight or flight thing out. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, so, and... um uh, not a lot of people are familiar with the phrase catastrophizing. but Oh, yeah.
0: Oh, gosh. oh God. Yeah. <laughs> I do that with everything. Zero to 100 in my life, everything's like... We had an issue with the dryer a couple months ago. Well, it broke. Now we have a new one. But a couple months ago, where I thought I smelled gas. And I'm like, yep, the house is going to burn down. I oh my from, gosh, I do that. I went I from do that. the dryer is, smells funny to now our house is going to burn down. So I had to go test all the carbon monoxide detectors. Like, well, if there's a gas, you know, so it's like that's how my brain works. I'm always zero to 100. Oh, no. Yeah. No, I have to, especially if I'm like anxious
2: about like other things, it's like, oh. This I'm gonna die because of X, Y, and Z. I'm on my I have cancer. You know, like I yeah. mean, that's, uh, yep. that's far fetched, but you know what I mean. Like yeah. just no, very but that's, no, yeah.
1: There are people that do that, and it's more commonly referred to as making mountains out of molehills, <laughs> <right? laughs>
0: But you and said the big word catastrophizing, catastrophizing which yeah.
1: is yeah. You you look at one small thing, and then your brain very quickly goes to the worst possible outcome.
2: I know, it just feeds your anxiety. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then everything
0: else the rest of the day is like, nah, yep, 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 Like car issues that I go from zero to hundred with anything with cars. Like, oh, my car is going to break down. I'm going to need to buy a new car and I'm going to have a higher car payment.
1: Well, maybe that's why I was so afraid of relapse when I was in treatment. Now that I think about it is, um, to me, relapse is the worst possible because I was hospitalized. I was thrown in treatment. So 34 days of...
0: So he, you were hospitalized for six six days
1: i was in there for almost eight. Oh, okay <laughs>
0: so he was in, and then he came home for about two and a half days and then mm-hmm. i drove you to hazelton on that friday
1: and i was there for 24 mm-hmm. days? 26 days 26 he was days.
0: supposed to be there 28 days and then covid hit hard oh no! towards the end of it but thankfully he had that like aha moment we were kind of waiting to see if okay. and Chris is an atheist and unfortunately I sent him to Hazelton which does do a lot of religious I feel like that's
2: every I but
1: that's gonna gonna ask every you treatment. About that. yeah. Do you do you mind if I if I take a pee pee cuz I do want to talk about that?
0: Okay. <laughs> I love the weep. <laughs>